Hello, this is Richard Wilson with the Family Office Club. And if you want to learn about investing right before and through a recession so that you can do well and be in line with where your strengths are as a family or private investor, then listen to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast with my friend Sam Newell. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Hi, and welcome back to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the show. His name's Richard Wilson. He's hugely impressed me with the business that he's built, which is called the Family Office Club. Uh, You can find it at familyoffices.com. Pitchdex.com is another one of his businesses, and sentamillionaires.com. He has eight free giveaways for family offices who are uh, looking for performance-based family office solutions, really in the $100 million plus asset class. Now, Richard is the author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office creating, operating, and managing the investment of a single-family office. He also earned a degree from Oregon State University, his MBA from University of Portland, and has studied master's-level psychology through Harvard's ALM program while previously residing in Boston. He's now in Miami. He has three kids and continues to run the Family Office Club. He has events all over the nation. I know I'm going to be going to an event soon. And uh, he's also an expert in marketing. And that's one of his businesses, Pitch Decks, learning how to work with investors, work with family offices. And uh, I'm really excited to have have, uh, Richard on the show. One of the really impressive things about Richard is that he grew his business during the 2007-2008 real estate crash. In fact, he grew it 100% in 2007, 100% again in 2008 and after that. So without further ado, Richard Wilson. I'm excited to have you on the show. You, Like I said, you, you were really impressive. Your branding's fantastic. The information's fantastic. And it just so happens I know a, a guy that's kind of getting his family office started I want to I want to introduce him to you because I think you'd add huge value. So he was a realtor with me. Yeah. Oh, geez, must have been eight years ago, and his family sold a business. Okay. He and his siblings each inherited, I think it was about fifteen million dollars each. Wow. They were smart. They started investing it, and but he he wasn't he he was still new, so he wasn't sophisticated. He wasn't experienced, okay. and you know. So I'm gonna his name's John. I'm gonna make sure I, I connect him with you because. I think you could add huge, add huge value, but is that your typical client? You know, you work with these family offices. Tell, tell my listeners a little bit about what you do, because I think it's, you filled a a niche that really needed what you provide. Yeah. You know, essentially it's usually someone who took a company public, sold a company or their company's cash flowing at, at much more than a million dollars a year, usually one, two, three, five million a year cash flow. Mm -hmm. Then they needed more sophistication in terms of their wealth management solution. 
So we're really trying to fill that gap of like traditional wealth management is diversifying your wealth and stocks, bonds, ETFs, commodities, a whole bunch of uncorrelated, hopefully, stuff. But as you become worth 7, 10, 12, 15 million or much more, like 50 or 100 million, almost everybody is investing uh, directly into real estate or through an independent sponsor into real estate that's cash flowing and then also investing in the industry where they made their wealth. So if they're a manufacturing family, they're looking for manufacturing deal flow and real estate deal flow. And that's pretty much how most families operate. And some people don't do that from the beginning. They trust a wealth advisor with all of their money, Mm -hmm. but then they just find the itch as an entrepreneur to invest back into their industry or other industries. And then they also just desire a sense of control in their portfolio. It doesn't really feel normal to them to give it all up to a banker after spending a generation creating the wealth and say, oh, okay, don't lose it for us. Right, right. Well, and so they either get bored or, you know, they don't love retirement, which is what happened to my uncle. At 45, he's retired and and got really, really bored. It sounds like there's also people that they they want to invest their own money. They want to be in on the deals. They want to know what's going on. And what, I mean, what's your ideal client? Tell us about that because you work with a lot of different, different clientele. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that. And also related to what you just said, I just think that uh, some people realize over time that the person they're working with usually inside of the wealth management firm may or may not be the founder of the firm. So they're getting a generic strategy that's being pushed out to lots of clients. Or if the person was so smart to manage their wealth, to really grow it and not just play a diversified defense, why wouldn't they be sitting on a beach somewhere if they knew how to create that type of wealth? Like, would they really be, you know, working 60 hours a week, serving clients at a wealth management firm, you know? Yeah, uh, (laughs) I like that point. If I had a gong, I would ring it right now. That's a great point. You know, that's something people need to think about. Yeah. If they're so good at managing wealth, what, what are they doing with your money? And I've heard, you know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard a lot of wealth managers, you know, they they really talk about being good at managing wealth and they're more dependent on fees and and maybe not as good managing their own wealth. I don't know. What what experience do you have with that? Yeah, I mean, most of the time they're connected to a platform and it's point click, diversify into stuff, get reporting through there. But when you're ultra wealthy, you want to buy the, you know, the 10 plex next to your office building, or you want to buy your actual office building. And unless it's a you know two hundred million dollar asset, the big investment banking shop and Goldman Sachs, U.S. Trust are not going to help you do that. Your wealth manager doesn't want to help you do that. They'll just say, "Be cautious, be careful, right. do your homework. Good luck." You know, so these families go out into the wilderness by themselves and figure out their direct investment portfolio. And that is our ideal client. It's a first generation, second generation wealth family, usually entrepreneurial. Sometimes their wealth was created in real estate, but usually from an operating business. And they want to design a strategy for their direct investments. Sometimes they need estate planning, tax planning, the full solution, but they especially need to dial in what type of operating businesses they're investing in and why, in what areas, what level of control, et cetera, at what valuations, and then also what type of real estate they want to allocate to and why. Because otherwise, what happens is they just start allocating all over the place to whoever has access to them or whoever they trust the most. But their assets get scattered all over, and then they can't add the strategic value that made them wealthy in the first place, where they really should design a unique game that's true to them, their background, their strengths, kind of their DNA, and where they want to focus their energy so that parts of their portfolio could be in multifamily or diversified stock market holdings to play defense, to grow their wealth in a tax-advantaged way in real estate, but then in their offensive area of their operating business investments, 
you know, that's where with a small percentage of their wealth, they could spike up their net worth. So the ideal client needs that because they're an entrepreneur at heart mm-hmm. and they're early second generation or first generation. So they still believe in creating wealth through creation of value and strategic control. If somebody just wants to diversify and they're generation four, just scared of losing great grandpa's money, then mm-hmm. they don't need me. They can just go to a wealth management shop and scatter their assets far and wide and diversify it to the extreme and not have to do anything. Right, right. No, I like that. So it sounds like you still recommend, you know, if they were like the example you gave, if they were in manufacturing, they, they need to niche down and not be throwing money at assisted livings, at, a, at apartment complexes, at storage units, at, you know, so I mean, people can do a few things, but that, that's the advice I've gotten as well from a number, number of mentors is they don't have shiny object syndrome, you know, um, right. down and, and be a specialist, even these ultra ultra wealthy, it sounds like you, you recommend they specialize as well and, and have that, I guess, ability to focus on, on one or two or a couple asset classes. Yeah, I think there's a difference between uh, controlling something completely yourself versus partially outsourcing or completely outsourcing it. So completely outsourcing might be talking to your wealth advisor, they get to know you, they design your portfolio, they invest it for you, and you just get a report once a month or something. The partially outsourcing would be finding maybe one fund manager and three to five independent sponsors, maybe just in one or two real estate types like self-storage and mobile home parks, multifamily and mobile home parks. So you can understand the space over time and get familiar with who's good, who's not, what's standard in the space in terms of returns and risk and fees. And then you know you can still choose things deal by deal but work through an independent sponsor so you don't have to manage the deal yourself as a family unless you really want to dig into a space and say, hey, we're going to go with multifamily with a third party, but for mobile home parks, we're going to do it ourselves and grow that muscle internally, and that's important to us as a family. You know, some families could choose to do that, but if you plan to invest in warehouses, data centers, mobile home parks, self-storage, multifamily, then you have five learning curves. Even if you're just choosing an independent sponsor, Mm-hmm. you've got five different learning curves to go up. So it just makes it more simple to choose uh, two or three at most in the real estate, even if you're using independent sponsors and then meet with 20 to 50 in each area. And then in the operating business side, some people say, oh, well, we're very excited about high tech and tech in general. We made our money in manufacturing or healthcare. They say, well, why don't you invest then in healthcare businesses and health tech or manufacturing tech and manufacturing? So you'll have an advantage knowing the space, you might even have an operating business. You could take their tech, use it in your real estate holdings or use it in your manufacturing plant yourself. And if it actually works, then you invest in the company. You can do better due diligence, et cetera. But yeah, most families don't focus enough and become ultra wealthy and just spread their money all over. Gotcha, interesting. And, and you know, that's what we're doing as well. We're focusing on two new asset classes. I know multifamily very well, understand it, get it. We can underwrite a deal in you know a half hour with my partners and I but it's harder and harder to find a good deal and we knew we needed to branch out. So the other asset class you mentioned was mobile home parks. It's hard to find a deal there as well, but that's one of the other asset classes we're focusing on. And we have a strategic partner. That's another thing that I thought you mentioned that, that I should go back to is, you know, have a couple options. So you and I met at Rod Cleaves mastermind group. I've been watching the different, operators there and deciding who should I partner with you know a small piece of a large pie is better than a a large piece and piece of no pie so 
right. I believe in finding the right partners for sure. And so we've got one in the mobile home park that's one of the best in the business. We have one now in assisted living as well. And, you know, we keep the, every time we stray from those two asset classes, we waste a lot of time. We were just looking at a hotel in uh, Farmington, New Mexico. I don't know if you've ever been to the Four Corners area, but yeah. it definitely uh, was a big waste of time. So, yeah. uh, no, I, I'm with you there. Specialized folks on a few asset classes because, yeah, you know, if, if you specialize in medical devices and you're trying to underwrite a business in technology, you're, it's going to be a, a huge learning curve and, and probably makes right. mistakes along the way. So I think that's really smart what you said. But tell me this. I've got a question I usually ask it at the beginning. You know, the reason we have this podcast is to hear from you what you saw during the downturn and maybe a couple specific examples it can be real estate or non-real estate related, but what are a couple of the biggest mistakes you saw people make and why or why not is that happening again more or still happening? Or tell me a little bit about that and, and what your experience was, what you saw during the downturn. Yeah, biggest mistakes I saw was people buying lots of acreage for single family residential development. And then during the entitlement process, which can be very slow, their construction financing gets pulled because the economy recedes and they didn't know the fine print of their, you know, debt agreements and what uh -huh. the clauses were in there. And that there could be one little clause that just negates everything else in the agreement and they can just pull the money because of some market factor or some trigger internally or, or something that's out of their control. And so I think a lot of people get so stressed out about, oh, we need to find the LPs, we need to find the equity and they're running around trying to circle the equity. And they just write off debt. It's like, oh yeah, we'll get debt from any places, whatever. It's all within you know, 10, 20 basis points of each other. Yeah. They don't know the debt agreement enough to push back on certain terms and clauses and really negotiate the fine print of the debt agreement and make sure maybe they're getting some uh, basis points carved off of that. And so I think keeping optionality in your debt agreements and we just, we just closed three self-storage debt agreements recently and it's a competitive business, but there's just so many clauses within the agreement that just get overlooked and just everyone's going 80 miles per hour trying to find the LP investors that they honestly just don't care that much. They just want to get in place and focus on where the bottleneck is, which is usually the investor. You know, I, I think that's really important. A lot of people don't understand why there were so many foreclosures why there's so many bank owned properties and it wasn't necessarily because people were being foolish it was but there was also a lot of terms signed that people didn't realize that their house could be taken away there's you know my broker my the owner of my company you know worth a lot of money very successful he was talking about during the downturn he had to come up with 30,000 because he had a huge amount of equity in his home he, like a lot of others in real estate, struggled, and the bank was very excited to take his home away, even though he had never missed a payment, you know, in, in, until that, that time, and, and he had a huge amount of equity. And so, you know, I, I think that's a great point. Look at your loan terms, and don't think about what's going on now. Think about, okay, you know, if there a recession comes, how could I get caught? And right. I'm glad you mentioned that, because most people don't even know what to look for you know, but for instance, being able to call the loan due or just retract financing, that's huge, you know, and, and banks are very risk adverse and, and you want to know, talk to that underwriting team, the loan committee, 
what their stance is if if things change. That's a great example. Anything else that that you really saw happen or you're seeing happen now with deals that are going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that whenever there's a herd of people chasing, you know, a single asset class or bidding something up just based on the momentum of it, like, you know, you could say maybe technology stocks and the stock market or the stock market in general and, you know, the multifamily space becoming tougher and tougher for anyone to find like a really good deal to do business in. Mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, one of the smarter real estate investors I know, he sold his whole, his whole portfolio to a major investment bank that he had know the name of in 2007 and got completely out of the market uh-huh. and then the market crashed and he's going through that exact same process right now and he's going to be free and clear of everything in the next 30 days. Wow. I don't know if he'll be as smart on timing, but it's better to be early than late if you're looking to, you know, avoid and be yeah. able to go in strong because like the embedded mistake of so many people getting burned is that they didn't have cash ready to deploy when the market went down. So even though the wealthy could get burned very badly and even 70% of the portfolio, their 10% sitting on cash now buys twice as much. And then when everything recovers, they're wealthier than ever before. So I think that ironically, the small to moderate sized investor who's maybe worth five or 10 million net worth or two to 4 million net worth, Mm-hmm. They get hurt by far the worst because they have this need to be more aggressive to become, they want to be worth 10 million. So they're right. really putting the pedal to the floor on leverage, on having four projects going at once, on relying upon partners and moving so fast they don't have the resources to review the debt agreements thoroughly, et cetera. So yeah. the market pulls back, they don't have the extra cash to invest at the bottom and they get burned the worst when they're, when everything kind of falls out of the bottom. Man, that's, that's, I love what you just said there. You know, they're, they're doing deals. They're doing too many deals. They feel like they have to over leverage, over commit. And we're seeing a ton of that right now. And, you know, I, I work out in the mornings with one of the owners of the, you know, it's debatable who the top builder is in Utah. Ivory Homes would say it's them. Edge Homes would say it's them. They're both fantastic builders, but I work out with the owner of one of those companies and and they had cash during the downturn. That's how they built their company. They went right. to the banks and said, hey, we'll, we'll pay you 30 cents on the dollar. And the banks, this is him telling me stories about this. He said, you know, the banks would tell us to pound sand and we'd go back a month later and we'd offer them 20 cents on the dollar and they'd say, okay. Right. <laughs> and, you know, their, their original investor, I believe, he came in with five million. Each of the other partners came in with a million or two. They got paid back those original investments many times over, multiple times over, between 2012 and 2017. And then they just sold for over over 10 times their original investment to a Japanese firm. So, what you just said is absolutely right on. You know, don't be too big of a hurry. You know, don't be trying to do deals just to do deals and make you know make crazy right. money. I've been looking for a, a big multifamily property to buy for the last nine months, 10 months. We've sent multiple LOIs out and we haven't bought a single one. Right. And you know, what you just said is so important because some of the best deals you do are the ones you pass up, you know, you don't do. And I was just sitting here while I was waiting to get on the call with you, analyzing a deal. It's crazy. It's a 3.5 cap here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Wow. And I thought I missed the numbers. I, I honestly thought I misheard him. So I had to text him back and say, wait a second, 
what did you say the gross income was and what is the price? Right. And it reconfirmed and, and it, you know, it, Crazy. We're, we're like $15 million off on, on price. And it, he says he's got verbal offers already. Wow. Um, that's crazy. So, huh? so it's interesting that you said that because I think you're absolutely right. People are doing a lot of deals they shouldn't and they're not taking the time to underwrite. So tell me, so, so I think that's really good advice. Tell me how specifically, what are you doing right now that you can help people? I know you have an event in Miami tomorrow because I was just looking right. at your website. You have right. some fantastic advice for people. You're looking for people that have family office and, you know, family offices or want to create a family office. How can we promote you and, and help you and your business out? Um, well, anyone who's in the commercial real estate space, we have you know, a, a investor relations marketing team, like a marketing agency called pitchdex.com. So if anyone needs materials made, we've got seven designers that can make it look excellent. We help you dial it into an investor base and make it targeted. You know, as you heard when you, when you saw me speak recently. Can I um, cut you off really quick? Yeah. I apologize. Ahead. On that yeah. note, I, I really want people to check you out and, and go to your website because I was on a call with a friend of mine last Tuesday as a courtesy. He was being pitched a deal. I'm not going to say where because this person might, might listen, but he was being pitched a deal. And so I jumped on the call to help him underwrite it and look at it. And, and the pitch had misspelled words. It was missing information that the comps were, were really not done well. It was, you know, your logo, I love your logo, by the way. It's so cool there in the background. I think it's awesome. You know, so it just didn't, it didn't seem professional. And that's one thing that my partners and I are obsessed with is we're waiting to put stuff out to investors because we're going to make sure it looks really, really good. You know, I'm changing my website, thanks to you and my entire brand name. And so I don't think a lot of maybe commercial brokers and people that are newer to the business understand when people have money, when your average clientele that has 15, 20 million to spend has money, they expect professionalism and you right. lose immediate credibility. You immediately lose credibility if you don't have that and show that. And that's why I love what you're, you were talking about at the, the event and what you're talking about now. So go to it's pitchdex.com. I'm looking at it. I'll put it in the show notes. That is awesome. so important to look professional and be professional when, when you're talking to investors. Yeah, for sure. And what most people are missing is they don't know exactly what investors are targeting and they don't know how to say exactly what they do in a single sentence. And then their brand name means absolutely nothing. <laughs> their logo is not dialed in. Like that's just the start, right? Like, you know, I can go on for a while. But if you go to pitchdex.com, I've got a bunch of hundred thousand dollar mistakes that that's just the start of them. There's many, many more common ones you can get from our website. And then we also have a commercial real estate debt origination division called uh, CRELending.com. And we help negotiate clauses with the banks, help source three to seven quotes and less time it would take you to get one quote, wow. uh, help with getting the underwriting to the banks. And then we, you know, we went over your business by, you know, not only doing that, but then you get free membership in the family office club and we get free design services through pitchdex.com. That's kind of a barter trade, like a thank you for being our debt client. We'll do all your pitch decks and materials for you and just help you get that capital raised done faster through better communication. And then in general, just our, our core offering at the Family Office Club is just a membership. It's like a Netflix for investment firms. So it's $199 to $299 a month, and it starts for $99. And then you can come to any and all of our uh, 25 live conferences per year and investor relations workshops, et cetera. And the membership fee is for those that are raising capital for something 
the family office club itself is free if you're an investor or a family office. And we do that because we want as many family offices coming to the events as possible and speaking on stage as possible. And then we work with some of them through our Centimillionaire Advisors Division. So we provide resources to those raising capital and design work, but we never take on a mandate where we're raising capital for someone because we're representing the investors on the other side and really only doing the investment advisory agreements with the investors, representing them, helping them find the right deals to go into. Got it. That's a lot of information. I'm going to put that in the show notes <laughs> and a lot of really valuable information. You're going to Singapore in November. That's exciting. Let's yeah, see, I should yeah. kind of look and see when you're going to be closer to me, although it's worth a flight out to Miami because I, I love Miami. We're going to be in uh, the state of California six or seven times next year. Oh, nice. And then uh, we'll be in Singapore uh, twice next year and we'll be in the U.S. a total of 23 times, I think. So, okay. you know, Dallas... Miami, New York, San Francisco, and then Houston, LA are the cities we're going to most often in case anyone's local to those cities. Perfect. Yeah, I know a number of, of people in, in those areas and, and I'll be recommending you to them for sure. We're happy to have you there as our guest since you uh, had me here on the podcast. Just let me know when you want to when you want to come, we'll put you on the roster. Hey, beautiful. I would love that. And again, I'm going to, I have a, a, a new family office guy that I'm going to introduce you to that probably needs needs your help. You know, I, we talked about what people are doing wrong, what people can avoid. Uh, what do you think, where do you think we are? I know you're not an economist, but you've been around. You saw the last, last crash. Do you think we're at the top of the market? Do you think we're heading towards, we're already in a downturn? You know, one of the largest syndicators I know thinks we already started a downturn. He thinks it started last fall. But where right. do you think we are? I mean, I think that Trump is the wild card. So I think everyone thought it was going to go down and then the new tax act came out and it kind of artificially bumped things up. And now we got the Fed to lower interest rates a little bit. Like who knows what other kind of magic tricks is going to work. Hmm. So yeah, I think we're at the top. You should be extremely cautious for sure. Uh -huh. But, you know, could Trump both get reelected and keep things going until like a centrist Democrat gets elected in five or six years and then it drops off the face of the cliff? That's quite likely as well, right? So yeah, yeah. I think I would only be doing like lending deals or deals that just underwrite so strong or you know you have the patience and the right type of debt on it that you could write it out and hold on to it for 12 to 13 years instead of five to seven or, or yep. three to seven. I think like these have to be extra cautious right now, especially if you're still going up learning curves and you know, I wouldn't go in real heavy if you just had a liquidity event and you're listening to this. Right. Well, and I love what you just said. You know, I was getting pitched a deal they were, they were planning on a five-year hold and being able to refi or sell for it for a right. lower cap in five years. And I said, hold on, guys. What, did you just say you're going to sell for a lower cap? You know, I don't think right. you can ever bank on that. And right. that was their entire exit. It was it was based on on selling at a lower cap. And, and you know, so, so anything we're looking at now is absolutely a 10-year hold. You know, if we can get longer financing and a 30-year amortization and a few right. years of interest only, great, but it's got to be at least a 10-year hold because I think you're right. You know, Trump can pull some more tricks out of his sleeve. He's a genius businessman. Whether you like him or hate him, he's doing right. a pretty good job for the economy. And, and whether that means he's pressuring the Fed into keeping rates low artificially for now until he gets reelected, I don't know. But all I know is is we're getting ready for sure for, for another downturn. So anything we buy, like right now, I don't know if you have offices doing something similar, groups 
doing something similar unless the asset will break even at 20% vacancy. You know, right. so in other words, it'll still cover its costs being 20% right. vacant. We won't look at it. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a pretty common uh, thing right now. I was just telling my brother at a, with a real estate investment we were looking at yesterday that in the model, it's just be extremely conservative and just assume that 25 to 30% would be empty. So that way, mm -hmm. even if 10% is empty, we're still making money along the way just to be ultra conservative you know, on the underwriting, because it's a new area of real estate investing that he's looking into. So I think, awesome. that, uh, I think that's a good, good assumption to go in with. Yeah, that's great advice. And, you know, to be honest, during 2008, 2009, most markets did not get much worse than seven to, to 10%. Right. And that's in, you know, C-class and, and right. A-class luxury. Your B and, and good C-class didn't suffer a whole lot, but D-class had up to 12% vacancy. So right. if you're not ready for that, you know, that's going to hurt. That's going yeah. to hurt in a big way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you always have to look at the assumptions and forecasts with a critical eye if somebody's selling you something because there's never a bad projection. They're never going to say, oh, the worst case scenario <laughs> is that we lose everything or the worst case scenario is this gets foreclosed on. Like their worst case scenario is actually still a pretty decent one. You yeah. still make a IRR of something positive when that's really not the worst case scenario. Right. So I think that uh, you always have to look at those assumptions and we looked at hotels before that for a client and we we're looking at an $80 million hotel in California and the person who is going to acquire it uh, with us said, Oh, well, we're going to raise the EBITDA, you know, by X percent per year. And it had been managed by three or four other professional managers and they'd only been able to raise it a very small percent yeah. every year. And they assumed that every single year they were going to be able to jump it up higher, higher, higher. Maybe they could, but, but they're different, they, right? Yeah, they acted like it was a sure thing. And it's like, it's for sure not a sure thing. So right. you have to put some assumption that's like conservative. Like, let's just assume it went just as well as the last guys ran it. And then look at how it does if it goes worse and how it goes if it goes better. Because uh, just assuming it's all going to go great, and that's never the case. Yep. No, I, I think that's really important. Well, you know, I'm kind of curious. I never pictured myself buying $30 million apartment buildings. I never pictured myself working with family office type investors, yet here I am and here you are. What did you want to be when you're growing up? I wanted to be an Air Force pilot and it will kind of end on something fun, but you know, I was slated to go to the Air Force Academy and fly F-16s. What, what were you planning on doing? Really? Yeah. I mean, in high school, I had started a dozen businesses and, uh, you know, so I, I just love starting businesses and I grew up reading Inc. Magazine and traveling around with my dad to business meetings. So that was uh, definitely in my blood. And I was always, I was selling long distance telephone service to everyone in my high school directory. I'd call all their parents and try to sell them on switching over no way. You know, phone it. services. So uh, I don't know, I kind of had the entrepreneur thing in my blood, but then my first term in college, I was going to be a computer programmer and then like debugging code 10 hours a day drove me nuts in the computer lab. So I switched over to business. And then even though I was in a school of business that had an entrepreneurial, like big slant to it, they had an entrepreneurial campus, and everything. Uh -huh. I got a formal letter from the dean saying that my access to the computer lab is going to be cut off if I'm caught trying to start a business on university resources again. <laughs> I showed it to all my professors. I'm like, what the hell is this? I thought this was an entrepreneurial school. You know, and they're like, stop trying to apply what you're learning in class. Oh Can't my do that gosh. on our computers, right? It's pretty funny. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. You sound like my best friend I grew up with. I mean, he was buying, 
buying, you know, Oakleys from China, selling them out of a briefcase when we're sophomores in high school. He was figuring out how to make money doing X, Y, and Z all the time. Now he's making, yeah. you know, money online marketing and, you know, sounds very much like you just has a mind for business and it sounds like that's what you're born for. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's like a game. I, I love playing any type of game, board game, video game, sports games. Like I can't stand watching sports because I'm like, why am I not playing the game? Why am I staring at these people having fun, right? And so yeah. like, if I can make business like a game and have fun playing business, and that's kind of kind of the goal. That's awesome. Well, you've done a great job with it. Look, we're we're about out of time. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm going to, you know, give you a nice introduction after we jump off. Anything specific you'd like me to tell our listeners about about you and what you do in the intro nothing super specific i mean just that if they are an ultra wealthy family looking for resources our centimillionaires.com website has a whole bunch of free like eight giveaways on that website and that that's the centimillionaire advisors website that's centimillionaires.com uh that's probably the most critical thing that maybe i didn't mention earlier but otherwise you know, whether you're raising capital or investing capital, I think it's just really high integrity is what leads to good results. So if you're true to who you are and what your background is and what your strengths are, you'll do better as an investor. And same if you're trying to raise money, you know. Thank you for saying that. Oh my gosh, I'm going to repeat that in your intro for sure, because that's huge. I'm watching a company right now that I, I used to work with or work closely with. They're struggling with with integrity and, and doing the right thing. And it's sad to watch. It's frustrating. And you and I, I'm sure have both run into that in our careers. So integrity is yeah. huge. That's I'd rather, I'd rather, I tell my clients all the time, I'd rather lose a deal, lose a commission than, than do one that I don't feel good about or don't feel like you should do. And, right. and it's always more important than money. And then if you have that, it's funny how, if you have that attitude, money will find you, you know, yeah, your exactly. clients will find you and they'll come back. And I had a client, I, I warned them not to do a deal and they did it anyway. Six months later, they're like, wow, well, we fired our realtor and you're a guy now because we sure got hosed on that deal you told us not to do. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, for yeah, sure. It comes so around. Can't be chasing money or commissions, you know, doing the right thing. So 